Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Andy Haslam. This season, we'll be speaking with the key decision makers who reap the benefits and gain the most value from effective risk management. We'll be exploring their perceptions, interactions, and experiences, as well as understanding what they personally have found to be the most rewarding and beneficial aspects that the discipline has to offer. We hope these conversations provoke thought and discussion amongst both risk and non-risk professionals to lift the lid on how its effective delivery can add real value to the roles of the beneficiaries. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. I'm your host, Andy Haslam, and today I'm joined by Paul Hodson. So Paul, welcome to Riskologists. Thank you. Uh, so we always start this off and it's always the same question I put to any of our guests that come along here. You know, how's your podcast game? Have you done anything like this before? Do you gen- generally tend to listen to them at all? I've listened to a few. I, I'd not say that I'm an avid listener of podcasts and I've never done one before. And I'm quite nervous that people will be interested in what I have to say, but also quite excited about doing it and um, getting my point of view across as a leader in the construction industry uh, on the topic of risk. Excellent. Well, there's nothing to be really nervous about. It's just a conversation between us and a few people might just be listening in at some point. So nothing to worry about there. Um, As always, we'd like to kick things off with a bit of a journey to date. So how you started in your career, uh, where it's taken you and a bit of a timeline up to the very point of recording today. So fire away. Okay, no problem. So I'm currently the head of capital delivery for Network Rail for Northwest and Central Region. I'm accountable for the enhancements portfolio, which is effectively major projects. Um, so, so really, really great job. Um, but it all started 30 years ago, 1993, when I started off as a junior engineer in the bridges department of the civil engineering group in BR. Um, did a few years in that space and then moved into project management about five years later and decided that I was going to do part-time study, did a degree, did a master's degree in construction project management, became chartered. Um, and then for the last 25 years, I've mostly worked in projects. So I've done stints in track renewals, um, bridge renewals, but mostly it's been on enhancement schemes, big jobs like West Coast Route Modernization, introducing the Pendolinos um, for the Virgin Fleet, um, major projects on the Chiltern Mines, such as Evergreen 3, Programme Director and Alliance Director for Northern Hub and Northwest Electrification, worked on High Speed 2 Portfolio, um, so really varied um, and all generally major projects, multidisciplinary, um, pretty long time frames. So not many projects that are kind of a year long start to finish. They're all in concept and design and feasibility for some of them up to several years and then planning and executing them and closing them out and handing back to the end user. So lots of varied experience over many, many years Um and I keep migrating back to the major projects environment because I love it. Yeah, no, it's a really wide and very, like you say, wide and very career. So, you know, especially things like the whole Pendolino trains, I can remember them coming in and yeah. and so on. So yeah, major, major stuff. Before we get stuck into the topic in a little bit more detail, as, as often as after all, this is a, a risk management podcast. Just briefly, what has your experience been with risk management over your career and what sort of relationship have you had with it? Okay, so in my early career, I probably, if I'm honest, didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, that probably went on for about 10 years and I saw it as a means to an end with regards to getting permission to do things so if the computer said yes you could carry on mm-hmm. and if the computer said no you couldn't carry on and if you got a no 
then the attitude back then was, we'll make it say yes. Do whatever you need to do to get permission to carry on, whether that be in a, a blockade situation where we're shutting the railway for a couple of weeks or we're shutting it down for a weekend or we're doing a project and we want to get funding and we've got to say that we've got to be able to finish it on time and all that kind of stuff. So really quite naive. Um, and obviously that sets you up to fail. If you if you fudge it and end up just making the computer say yes, then you create loads of difficulties for yourself further down the line. And then in about 2004, I was managing a major project on West Coast route modernization called Crew Weaver which was crew up to the kind of Warrington area and turning off left at Liverpool. And I was allocated a dedicated risk and value manager in the team. And he took loads of time to educate me and the team on the importance of why we were doing it and all that kind of stuff. And it enabled, the work that he did enabled us to really get it and to start having some really high quality dialogue with some of our key stakeholders around the probability of success, what needed to be true to make it successful, what if we didn't succeed? What did that P80 time of completion mean? Did it mean that we were going to overshoot a weekend possession by 30 minutes? Or did it mean we were going to delay the implementation of the entire programme by two years? And, and all of that knowledge enables to, us to reshape the project and reshape weekends and all that kind of stuff. And um, really, really valuable. And that stuck with me ever since. And one of the first appointments I always look to make is to have a really high quality risk and value manager in the team. Excellent. Well, it's great, like I say, to see the uh, the, the benefit realised over those years, and and you know, really, yeah, really seeing the benefit from it. Uh, well, brilliant. Thanks for that, Paul. Um, so, kind of introducing the topic a bit, as everyone can already tell from the the title of the episode today, we're going to be discuss, discussing QSRA, um, but not just the process itself, um, which has been covered by a couple of other um, couple of other episodes already. Uh, we're going to be looking at what you, actually comes after the models are done, and you know how the true benefit can really be realised from from doing QSRA. Um, we'll go into this in a little bit more detail shortly, but for the benefit of listeners, could you give us a bit of a brief overview of your experience with QRA then, and and when you first came across it, your initial thoughts and, and how you currently utilize it. Okay, well, when I first came across it properly was what I've just said about 2004 when I really started to understand it. Been exposed to it before that, but it was quite binary. Computer says yes, computer says no, make it say yes. Um, and an example I can give from those early days is that we had a really crucial signaling commissioning to do. And it was in... Um, an access opportunity, which was a long weekend effectively. So we had to strip all of the old signaling out, put the new signaling in, and we needed to commission the signaling. And we did a QRA on that particular program, and it told us that we had about a 60% chance of success, which on the West Coast mainline is a complete and not a no-no. Mm -hmm. So we did uh, mitigating actions, we rerun the modeling, and we still weren't getting into a place where we could offer our customers a high probability of success and we couldn't change the access. So what we did is we started to have dialogue about that window beyond the end of the access opportunity and then the ramp up in probability of success as the minutes and hours went by. And we got into a place, as I explained before, where actually, worst case, it was gonna overrun by an hour. And that had a 95% chance of success. So when we started to talk to the customers about that, they decided that what they would do was that they would rejig the timetable in the morning <clears throat> to give us that extra time without 
leaving people stranded on stations with absolutely no notice. Mm -hmm. So they would divert the first two trains in the morning or they would put a bus on and that kind of stuff. And that really started to, for me to explain the power of understanding your job and understanding your programme and bringing all of those different stakeholders in and telling them that you understood it instead of crossing your fingers and then come Monday morning saying, oh, but it's only an hour late because actually in our business, an hour late is an hour's worth of commuters, school children stood on platforms with no trains and no information and really no certainty about when that job's going to be completed. Mm -hmm. So that became really powerful for me. And from that point on, I've tried to apply the same principles and all of this, what comes after a QRA is the most important thing because there's two trains of thought. You put it in a drawer because you've got the permission or you actually use it to the benefit of the programme team. So, so I've used it ever since on all kinds of projects, uh, both on cost and schedule, probably major on schedule today. But the same principles apply for cost with regards to understanding the risks and the cost drivers and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I use it all of the time. And the reason that I was asked to do this by our risk and value lead is because I now am a director of major projects, um, but I'm really passionate about it and I try and educate the team and all that kind of stuff. So this spreads the word a little bit wider than um, it's all good. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're trying to get out of it. So all your experiences is, is invaluable really towards it. So, uh, so thank you for that, Paul. Um, so let's get into the topic a bit then. So which key pieces of information do you value the most from a QRA then? And is there anything within a QRA report, which you, you find maybe a little unnecessary? I don't find much of it unnecessary to be fair. Um, we've, we've pared it down to be relevant. So, uh, the P80 date for programme success, uh, the P90 time for a possession-related success um, is what we tend to use. Um, really like looking at the unmitigated situation. So that's the, my deterministic programme. We don't mitigate any risk. What's it telling me? Because that helps us move into the next phase. Um, looking at the tornado graphs to see what the biggest risks are, which are driving those timescales or costs out or up. Um, the assumptions that need to be true to make it happen and then working out a mitigation strategy which has action owners time bound who we need to interface with at what level in the organization or the stakeholders world do we need to escalate it to so it isn't just paid lip service um, and then bringing it all to life so um, you can either go into those meetings following the QRA talking about your unmitigated world if people have no appetite to mitigate and they can live with the consequences of that, which normally means the job will be more expensive and it'll take longer. Or we can work together across all the different stakeholder groups to proactively mitigate risks, the big risks, and, and really take ownership of it so that we can um, watch them in, put the risk behind us, and then drive forward on that post-mitigated plan or cost and, and drive the programme forward to completion. Mm. I was going to so say... Lots, lots, of, lots of valuable information in, in the output, and I don't think one trumps the other because I think it's fairly, for me anyway, it's fairly sequential. Mm -hmm. You look at the outputs and then you decide what you're going to do with those outputs, and then your mitigation strategy goes in different directions depending on risk appetite and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you find that you, I think you mentioned it before, you you, you tend to focus more on like that pre-mitigated status as opposed to the post-mitigated is at the initial point. Is that, would that be fair to say? I think that is fair to say because that drives your action plan. So 
unmitigated, you're in a situation where you genuinely understand um, the top risks. And then you've really got to scratch your head and get different people in the room to work out how you're likely to mitigate those. And then you've really got to understand how likely it is that you can mitigate them, because quite often people will put pipe dreams in mitigation strategies that you know are never going to come off. And again, that goes back to what it's making the computer say yes. So I'd like to test how real they are and who needs to be involved in it. Um, because if I need the Secretary of State for Transport to make a decision quickly, and that's part of my mitigation strategy, I know that probably isn't going to happen. So then it's kind of notching it down the level and say, well, what can we get? Um, and, and then it drives your action plan going forward. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's always good to hear that as well, because obviously the the, the pre-mitigated is normally the more pessimistic version of, of events and everybody's yeah. looking for the more optimistic version to get the, the most out of it. So it is refreshing to hear that the, 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 the pre-mitigated um, status or the, the, the exposure of the scheme is, is actually more beneficial. Yeah, um, I think it helps the starting point conversation as well, that this is the unmitigated situation and anything that we do from this point on is an improvement. Mm -hmm. If you jump straight in with the post-mitigated, crossing your fingers, you're going to set yourself up to fail. And I have as a result of doing that, and I've been burnt. So that's probably why I tend not to do that anymore. Yeah, that's good. Lessons learned are always the best. Yeah. Um, so in general, really, what, what would be then your first port of call? Um, you know, if once you've got the results of a QRA, then I think you've already kind of touched on it slightly there of, of moving through from that pre-mitigated status and, and moving on from there. But, you know, is there is there one thing above all that you're like, this is the first thing I go to? It's all of the above, really. I don't, I don't think you can take one thing out of it. Um, I tend to get drawn towards the tornado graph mm -hmm. um, and, and look at that in comparison to the probability of success. Mm -hmm. So if the probability so of top, success is, risk drivers and things, is really yeah. low then I tend to go and look at what the top risks are that we need yeah. to mitigate um, in order to make that probability high. Yeah. But it's all of the above and everything that I've just talked about, which is developing that mitigating strategy. Uh, so can you give an example where the QA process has altered the project's ability to meet their objectives and, and how it did that? Yeah, um, there's one example that I often use with my teams when I'm trying to tell them how important it is. And it was back in... 2018, where we had a big timetable change on the West Coast Main Line, and the timetable or higher frequency of trains into Euston Station. So we did PED flow modelling, which is modelling the passengers that come off the trains and that are getting on the trains and how they mill around the station. And as a result of that, we needed to remove a load of retail units. So there was things like Paul Hollywood's pasty shop, there was accessorized, there was tie rack, all those kind of things that you used to see in on stations. And we needed to um, get the tenants out, we needed to demolish them, we needed to put terrazzo where they were and get rid of all of the services so that we had more space for people to move around and rush for their trains and all that kind of stuff. When we did the QRA on it, um, we were supposed to be completed um, early December to allow the timetable change to happen mid-December. And the P80 date for that particular programme was chucking out January, which meant that we would have had a station that was either inoperable or not as safe as it could be for a couple of months, which was just untenable. <clears throat> so we looked at the tornado graph and the biggest driver for that uncertainty was getting into a position where we could legally serve notice on the tenants in accordance with the contracts and the leases that we have with them. Um, because 
that was normally quite protracted. It was fraught with back and throwing between two sets of solicitors um, before the director would sign the piece of paper serving the eviction notice. <clears throat> so I collared the route director at the time and explained this to him and said, if I mitigate that particular risk, and he said, what do you mean by mitigate that risk? I says, well, actually, it's going to take some courage from you not to go through all of that legal stuff and serve the eviction notice now, do the legal stuff in the background. And then if we can't do it, the answer's quite binary, but at least you've served it and at least the clock's ticking. Mm -hmm. um, in those circumstances, I can bring the date back to the end of November. So he said, let me think about that. So we went and took a bit of legal counsel and he came back and he said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it because you've explained it to me properly. Mm -hmm. And I now understand that if we don't do it, then I'm looking at a January date and the pain of that will be far worse than the pain of me taking a small risk and getting those eviction notices served. So he did it. He did it the next day. And as a result of that, the clock was ticking and we had a date when we knew that those tenants were going to move out and that we could start to mobilise the project team to get in there and start um, ripping out all of the services, um, doing doing the reverse shop fit, demolishing the units and getting the Terrazzo contractor in. And, um, and we did it. And we did it on time for the timetable change. And um, and, the, and the reason that I use that example is because I brought a non-projects person in who was the director of running the route, running the trains, who really didn't understand that world at all. And if I'd done it in a highly conversational and anecdotal way, he wouldn't have issued that notice. Mm -hmm. But because I was able to explain to him over the course of an hour of the process that we've been through, that this big outlier risk was what was driving the uncertainty, he was prepared to um, make that call and do it. So... That's a really powerful example for me, one that I use a lot, and we've used we've used the same technique since. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's always great. To, it's you know we can we can talk about the benefits of doing this and what comes out of it, um, you know, until the cows come home. But actually, having real life experience and and um, you know instances like that where it really has made a difference and and helps you actually bring the project in on on time, which at the end of the day is the main thing that we always want to try and do. Yeah, um, it's always a like I say a really powerful thing to have. So thanks for sharing that one, Paul. Um, on one note we've kind of touched on is is how the process can affect a business's overall risk appetite it was mentioned slightly before but can you go into a little bit more detail about that and how you found it to affect a business's or a client's um, risk appetite in general I, th I think it's about more than our business i think it's about lots of different stakeholders have a part to play in our projects we have train companies who run trains we have freight operating companies we have the government that funds some of our projects we have third parties that fund some of our projects some projects um, are driven by the introduction of new rolling stock, which might be stuck on a ferry somewhere if we don't get the job finished. Some, it doesn't really matter if we finish a little bit late as long as we communicate it properly. So there's lots and lots of moving parts in our projects. And for me, I think it's about educating everybody about what the risks are so that we can collectively decide what our risk appetite is. And we can either go really gung-ho because the prize is really, really big and work like work like hell to try and get all of the mitigation plans in place. Or actually, in certain circumstances, we might not want to take any risk at all. And we might want to get ourselves into a position where certainty is more important. <clears throat> so I think, I think the process and the outputs generate that dialogue, that high-quality dialogue, and then collectively come to a decision. 
Um, another example I'll use in that regard is that we had a railway closed settle Carlisle line because we'd had a landslip and the job was to build a piled viaduct uh, which effectively replaced the slip bank and the settle Carlisle railway was closed while we were doing this so there was trains that traveled as far north as Appleby and turned around and people started over time because this went on over several months to find different ways of travel and they adjusted their lifestyle accordingly so there was quite a lot of pressure to get the railway open like there always is but there was also um, the messaging was really important to the local communities that we could stand by what we told them so that at the point in time where they wanted to rely on using that train service again it was going to be there mm -hmm. so in that case we ended up being a little risk averse and went for a re really high probability of success because of the comms and the messaging and the credibility was so important. Mm -hmm. So it can the output can take you in loads of different directions with regards to risk appetite, and then you can collectively decide on how you're going to move it forward. Yeah, as always, context is king. I think is yeah. the is the the key for that one. In your experience, then, how do you find the transition of receiving a QRE report and perhaps? running it through the outputs with the acting risk professional who conducted the analysis to then responding to the information from that report. So, you know, really getting to the grips of with the, the key costs and schedule risks and understanding if and how we're able to respond to them. Yeah, I think we've probably touched on this a little bit before, which is to review all of the outputs and the things that need to be true or mitigated. Um, and then trying to identify the people that need to help us do that. Because it's really rare that a project team can mitigate all of the risks on their own, um, which is a mistake that lots of project teams make. They allocate the risk transfer schedule out amongst the project team, and then they come up against a brick wall when they really try and mitigate it and they need somebody else to sign it off or they need somebody else's help. Mm -hmm. So identifying the key players and at what level in the organisation we think they would be able to help us. So I don't like a company name as the mitigation, because if you go in at the wrong level, you might just get the answer that no, we can't do that. Whereas if you go in at the right level, and I don't always mean going to the top, I mean the right level, then you might get people who are prepared to think outside the box a little bit and commit to mitigating risks that maybe somebody more junior in the organisation didn't feel empowered to do. So mitigation strategies, assumptions that need to be true, named owners, named timeframes to sort them out, and then watch it in. So have regular progress meetings with those action owners to make sure they're doing what they need to do. Um, and actually inform them of the consequences if they don't do what they promised to do. Yeah, that's definitely another thing that I think gets lost a little yeah. bit sometimes. Um, so I think given the amount of time and effort that goes into producing like a robust um, a robust analysis, uh, particularly a QSRA, I find it interesting when some in, in some instances, organizations will produce a comprehensive report analyze the outputs and then seemingly just shelve it. Um, you know, it may or, or may not be something that you've considered before, but reflecting on what you've, what we've discussed and, and what does a, a successful post analysis action plan look like to you? Um, you know, what would you like to hear and or see from the project teams to really feel comfortable that they're doing all that they can to action the information from the QRA report? I'd like, I'd like them to own the outputs mm -hmm. and believe in the outputs. So that means that they've got to go through the process in a robust manner mm -hmm. with the right people involved and a hefty amount of challenge and debate and be realistic about the assumptions that need to be true and the mitigations that need to be applied to make it a success. And then again, it's, it's really getting them to think about 
um, the amount of help that's out there. There's so many different groups of people or people or businesses that can help us achieve our goals. So I'm really interested in seeing action plans that might name somebody from the Department of Transport. It might name for a different list somebody from the train operating company. It might name, God forbid, the big, big boss in network rail because we might need that level of support. Mm -hmm. um, and, and being absolutely realistic about the limitations of what the project team on its own can achieve. Because what that enables me to do, once they've escalated those things, is to build on my networks and go around the different businesses and talk to them, like talking to that um, route director about Houston. Um, my, my project manager probably wouldn't have been comfortable doing that, but I was fine doing it because that's part of my network and the conversation was over a cup of coffee and it was totally relaxed. And, and that's what I'm there for. And my colleagues are there to do the same and the people in the other businesses are there to do the same. So, um, so yeah, I want the team to, to take it seriously, to respect the outputs, to really try and understand how we can use the outputs and who needs to help us and then ask for that help. No, that's great that Paul. So what would you do in a situation where your mitigation actions are really high risk and you're, but you're still not achieving a high probability of success as what the model's showing is it could be? I suppose with an output like that, it's really important to bring the wider stakeholder group into the conversation at that point and get them to understand that if we do progress with a target completion date or a target budget, then it's going to be fraught with risk and it's going to have a low probability of success. And I would always encourage um, for the enjoyment of the individual working on the project um, and to keep them engaged throughout and not feel like they were constantly favorable be that that is what generally would drive a rebaselining for me mm -hmm. an educated rebaselining to rebaseline it into a situation where you from a cost point of view you had enough contingency and from a schedule point of view you had enough you had enough flow and you had enough confidence in the delivery time scales mm -hmm. because the major projects that i manage are several years long and if mm -hmm. you if you set off high risk with a concertina program and overlapping activities that really shouldn't be overlapping and all that kind of stuff. It's really demoralizing for everybody working on that project because failure of intermediate milestones or gobbling up your contingency quickly tends to trigger lots of peer reviews, lots of audits, lots of people coming in asking what you need, what you what you're doing, um, deep dives, um, everybody poking their oar in about how you could do it better. And and for me, they're the kind of project environments that people want to leave. So if you set them up for success at the beginning, and sometimes it's a really tough conversation to rebaseline a program or ask for a little bit more contingency. But if you do it early enough, um, before you've wasted the time or before you've wasted the money, mm -hmm. I think the, the people funding the job and the end users are far more receptive to it. And then it sets the team up for success and they can be as happy as they can be throughout the duration of that program. So so that's what I would do in those circumstances. Does that mean that you'd, you'd always rather get QRA done as early as possible then within the process? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then just yeah, the earlier you do it, the better, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's it's like you, the decisions that you make in the early stages of a project um, are probably the most beneficial. QRA is part of that mm -hmm. because that can drive your agreement on the end date. It can drive your agreement on the levels of contingency. It means that you can identify risks early on and start mitigating them early on instead of watching them happen and going, oh dear, I better spend the money or that's been flown gone. Mm -hmm. So yeah, earlier the better.
Excellent. Well, thanks again for that, Paul. That's excellent advice as always. Let's start to kind of wrap things up a little bit then. If you were to try and give some advice to risk or project management professionals listening um, about how QRA can help them to get the most out of their risk management practices in their day-to-day operations, you know, what, what would you say to them? I would say if you've listened to this, then you should try and be an early adopter and not leave it 10 years to really understand it like I did. Do a bit of reading. You can Google lots and lots of stuff on the benefits and disbenefits and the methodology of QRAs, both for cost and program. Mm. Um, go and tap your risk advisor or your risk and value manager or organize them to share their time with you at Lunch and Learns, all that kind of stuff, and really get under the skin of it and, and look at examples of where it's benefited the delivery of a project. Um, and don't just see it as something that you need to do. Um, it's not just a tick box. Every project life cycle will have that tick box in it. Mm-hmm. It's not a tick box. It's one of the most important things that you can do um, because it tests how robust your program is. It makes sure your project um, program is uh, properly logic linked. It tells you how much contingency um, you might need to complete the job and where you should be focusing your attention on your big risks. So it's so important. Um, and never ever fudge the numbers. Yeah, that's yeah, really, that's really a simple important. thing, doesn't it? But yeah. yeah. Never fudge the numbers because it will just set you up for failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think honesty within it is always one of those things. It's um, it's an invaluable part of it. And obviously, we always try and uh, press that to all of our clients when we're dealing with it. You know, you've got to try and be yeah. honest with it because like you say, if, you, if you're not from the start, you're just going to end up, you're just trying to make the computer say yes. For definitely going back to what you're saying at the beginning yeah um, but amazing thanks again for that paul and kind of speaking of, of advice you know regular listeners will know as we get towards the end of the podcast we always ask our uh, you know our guests a, a particular question and that is you know if you could give yourself one piece of advice at the start of your career that you maybe picked up along the way what would that be i think it would be to always treat people with respect i did some learning several years ago about people's different values and just because somebody's values are different from your own doesn't mean they're not valid values. So I always try and look through their lens mm-hmm. to see what angle they're coming from and my, why they might be responding in a particular way um, so that we can try and work together. And, and treating them with respect on that journey is really important because over, particularly now where careers could be 40 or 50 years long, you're going to come across the same folk again. So what you don't want to be doing is having fallen out with somebody several years ago, coming across them again and then being your key sponsor or you want them to be an advocate, but there's some baggage there where they won't be. So try and be empathetic, look through their lens and um, and, and deal with every situation as you find it taking other people's values into account. Excellent. Excellent advice there. Yeah, it's uh, a really valid one. And I think, you know, everyone can take away with that. So um, it just leaves me really to, you know, start to bring it up to the end of the podcast and, and just to really thank you for your time with it today, Paul. It's been uh, been fantastic and loads of things for people to take away from this. So, you know, thank you very much for your time in the build up to it and actually recording today. Um, if there's any of the listeners who want to contact you um, regarding what we've obviously discussed today, what how's best for them to, to, to get hold of you? It's probably easiest and more controlled if it's through LinkedIn. Um, I'm public on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not a celebrity or anything, so I'm just there. <laughs> You'll be able to find me and contact me on LinkedIn if you want to pick the 
brains or ask me anything, that would be absolutely fine. And I just hope that some of you who've listened to this find my experiences useful. I might have got it wrong. Um, you might you might jump onto one part of it. You might enjoy the whole lot. Um, but if there's some people out there that get some benefit from it, and it increases the profile of the importance of risk management in program management, then my work here is done. So thanks for the opportunity. Brilliant. It's an absolute pleasure. And that's exactly what we're here for. So I guarantee that someone, you know, everybody's going to get something out of this. So uh, yeah, again, just leaves it, leaves it for me to say thanks again for your time, uh, for everything for the recording today. And uh, yeah, for everybody listening, stay tuned for the next episode soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andy. Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Riskologist, please make sure to follow Optimize on our social media platforms where you can subscribe to this podcast, be notified of the latest releases and help us broaden our reach to the wider risk community. You can also find the full back catalogue from season one, where we've interviewed some of the discipline's most renowned thought leaders around the industry's most pressing topics. If you'd like to get in touch, either as a future guest or with any subject suggestions you'd like to hear covered, please contact us using the address in the podcast notes below. And please join us next time, where we'll be hearing the thoughts of another key decision maker and their experiences with risk management. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.